You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. If the position developed in the preceding lecture is correct, then abortion is an act which takes the life of a living, developing human being and hence it is a kind of homicide, that is, the killing of innocent human life. This position is not without opposition, and the opposing points of view are at present controlling in our culture. Some opponents frame their arguments in terms of compassion, compassion for women, for families, and for children with disabilities. And there is no denying that these arguments touch deeply the wellspring of human emotion. But compassion unchecked by reason is a dangerous guide. Others frame their position in terms of women's rights. Others develop their position in terms of a distinction between human persons and human non-persons. And by placing the conceptus in the human non-person category, its destruction is defended. Still others make autonomy the sole criterion in choice. And finally, some embed their arguments in the contemporary postmodern philosophical position. Responses to all of these claims will be framed from within the position developed in the first lecture on abortion. Following this general response, specific responses will be made to significant arguments that have been presented in support of the discontinuity of development claims and the resultant distinction of the human person from the non-human person. But first, feminism. In the midst of the second moment of the feminist movement, some feminists began to advance the claim of a right to abortion as a fundamental right, a necessary right so that women may have absolute control over their reproductive finality and hence absolute control over their lives. These feminists articulated the defense of their right to abortion in the following constellation of ideas. The right of control over her body, the necessity of autonomy and choice in the attainment of personal responsibility, the moral right of women to full social equality, the right of women to self-determination, the very American-sounding freedom to choose, and finally, a restriction that no man has a right to enter the discussion. All of the claims articulated here are framed in the language of absolute claims and violate the claims of ordered liberty that limit our rights by the legitimate rights claims of others. To the claim of right over one's body, there are two responses appropriate here. The first has to do with the claim of absolute right over one's body. The second acknowledges that there are two bodies involved in every abortion decision. In regard to the latter, the human being developing within the woman has its own body, which is genetically distinct from the body of the woman within whom it is developing and upon whom it is dependent to sustain its normal environment. The right of the woman to her body is limited by the right of the nascent human being to the integrity of its body. Furthermore, 
the appropriate human response to human dependence is care, not power to destroy. In regard to the former, the right over one's body is a limited right as recognized in law, in medicine, and in the religious tradition that frames these lectures. In the law, the right to control one's body is limited by the interest of the state in exercising its parents' patriae obligations. Among the most significant of the parents' patriae obligations are the preservation of life and the protection of the integrity of the medical profession. The famous and often quoted words of Mr. Justice Cardoza are frequently rendered in support of an absolute right to one's body. Cardoza wrote, no right is more sacred or is more carefully guarded than the common law right, the right of every individual to the possession and control of his own person, free of all restraint or interference from others, unless clear and unquestionable authority of law. Note carefully Cardoza's words, authority of law. Those who claim his authority more often than not disregard the authority of law and the derivative authority of ethics of the medical profession. The range of application of the authority of law may indeed be limited. Nonetheless, that authority remains. The law internal to the practice of medicine limits the ministration of medicine between the proscription, do not harm, and the prescription to use the art of medicine to heal. Abortion performed where there is no medical indication violates both the proscription and the prescription. Within the religious tradition that informs these lectures, there can be no claims to absolute autonomy. Human beings are creatures who are radically dependent upon God for their existence and for the continuation of that existence. The patient of God with God's creatures should serve as the paradigm for the patience of creatures, including the patience of pregnant women with each other. The religious tradition recognizes the body as gift and as temple of the Holy Spirit. The gift is to be used in the service of life and in reverence for the author of life. In regard to the claim of absolute autonomy, the postmodern period has indeed witnessed both the expansion of the notion and the expansion of the role of autonomy in medical ethical decision-making. Some feminists have embraced this absolutization of autonomy. The philosophical notion of autonomy has in this been torn from its position as an integral part of morality and has become instead the whole of morality. The philosophical notion of autonomy traces its parentage to Kant, and his search for the axiom of morality. Within Kant's moral theory, it functions to provide the account of the experience of the rational creature of the categorical imperative as duty. It is the will as practical reason issuing commands that are capable of universalization and commands that are compatible with membership in a possible kingdom of ends. Kant says in his account of the will of every rational creature as a will giving universal law the following. Thus the principle of every will as a will giving universal law in all its maxims is very well adapted to being a categorical imperative. Provided, Kant says, provided it is otherwise correct. Thus for Kant, 
Autonomy is not my right to do as I please, but rather my obligation to do what I ought. And I ought to do those things which are capable of being universalized, and those things which treat others as ends and never as means only. The nascent human being, as a possible member of a possible kingdom of ends, exercises a limiting function over the autonomous claims of the mother. The claim which demands the removal of all men from the abortion decision, at least in a pregnancy resulting from consensual acts of men and women, violates the rights of men as full participants in the community and as full participants in the lives of children. This seems erroneous and counterproductive in a feminism that desires equal rights and equal responsibilities. The present moment in the history of philosophy and of culture, at least in the English-speaking Western world, has been described as post-religious, post-scientific, and post-humanist. This position exercised incredible influence on morality, on medicine, on public policy, and law, as well as on the intersections of those disciplines. The central notion in this postmodern philosophy are, first, a contentful secular morality cannot be discovered. Second, we are moral strangers. And third, peaceful negotiation is the only possible way to secure a general moral framework. And fourth, only human beings who are autonomous, that is, fully developed, rational, and self-conscious beings, are persons. Thus, personhood is a matter of accomplishment. Only persons are bearers of rights in the strict sense. Hence, human non-persons are vulnerable. In brief, the responses to 1, 2, and 3 of this postmodern position are the following. While a contentful secular morality cannot be discovered, reason is not paralyzed. Reason discovers some things, and reason constructs others. What reason discovers allows for the affirmation of an understanding that is supported by a preponderance of evidence. Reason is appropriately constrained in constructing by that which reason discovers. There are specific markers in the human community that can be discovered by reason and which place limits and give direction to moral theory. Two of those related markers are that human beings, although retaining their individuality, live as related beings. And from these relationships, concrete duties arise and roles are defined. Second. Human beings begin their lives in radical dependency, live much of their lives in varying degrees of dependency, and achieve autonomy, if at all, relatively late in life and only for a limited time, and return to endure dependence once again in their decline. Hence, human beings are neither absolute moral strangers nor absolutely autonomous individuals. Inasmuch as human beings live in concrete relationships to each other, concrete duties arise that are not subject to negotiation. Human relations vary, but the individuals who make up these relationships do not exhaust their reality in these relationships. Some of the more obvious relationships are those of husband and wife, mother and fetus, parent and family. It is existence as related beings that is the source of our traditions of community, of hospitality, of mutual respect, and of liberty as ordered. These relationships constitute the links in the web of sociality. 
This understanding of human life as woven in relationships gives direction, even substance, to the negotiations in and for a peaceable community. Pregnancy provides an example of human beings embedded in relationship. It is a temporary relation between two whole human beings, one immature and the other mature. This temporary physical union is also a moral union. Neither of the human beings who constitute the relationship is determined to accomplish the totality of existence within the relationship. The woman is a relatively autonomous being. Her life is characterized by a set of goals that extend beyond pregnancy. For the duration of the pregnancy, the fetus is a radically dependent being. The accomplishment of the ends of the fetus, which lie outside the pregnancy, require the cooperation of the woman to allow it to endure throughout the pregnancy. The care that a woman exercises toward this temporarily, radically dependent being may serve as a paradigm of care for building a peaceful community, a community, a society that is marked by a people who love one another. Let's now turn to the ontological status of the conceptus. Some who direct their argument to the ontological status of the conceptus maintain that it is not fully human. Their arguments are usually framed in terms of discontinuity between human biological life, the human non-person, and human personal life, the human person. Those who attempt such a separation frame a variety of arguments. Among them are the legal notion of person, brain death criteria, ordinary use of referential language, the consideration of potentiality, vulnerability at various stages of development, and the related issues of totopotentiality, twinning, and ensoulment. First, the legal notion. The legal notion of person as it applies in the abortion issue is a matter of the use of a juristic concept to designate a bearer of rights, that is, rights as interests which should have governmental protection. Until recently, the application of the title person to human beings and consequently their protection in the law has been an expanse of history. Over time, various classes of human beings, for example, African Americans, American Indians, and women, have been included within the ambit of the concept rights and have been accorded rights before the law. A distinctive feature of rights in the juristic sense is that while individuals are bearers of rights, the law protects the exercise of those rights at various stages. Before the law, rights are a function of the present capacities of human beings. For example, the right to consummate a contract receives legal approbation when a human being has the present capacity to exercise that right. Since a human being becomes and lives at syngamy, its right to life should be accorded legal protection at that time. In regard to the use of brain death criteria, it is important to note that the medical notion of brain death and the ensuing disjunction between personal life and biological life, in that distinction, the potentiality for the activities of the higher level nervous system no longer exist in the individual who is designated dead by such criteria. And the conceptus, on the other hand, there exists from the beginning the remote 
potentiality for the activities of the higher central nervous system. The remote potentiality is the source and the necessary condition for the emergence of the proximate potentiality, which is the source of the here and now higher brain activities. It is to be noted that in the ordinary use of language, the conceptus is referred to as an it. And because of this use, the social status and the ontological status of the conceptus is diminished. The denotation of the conceptus as an it rather than as a he or she is a defect on the part of the observer rather than a defect on the part of the conceptus. The ordinary observer may not know the sex of the conceptus, but the trained observer can make that observation. Some who argue discontinuity use the language of potentiality and probability to frame their arguments and to dismiss the conceptus from the category of personhood. One such argument describes the conceptus as an animal with great promise of becoming more than just an animal, that is, a human person. The appropriate response is that the conceptus, by virtue of its active natural potentiality, which is a guarantee of its future development, will develop itself by tendency into the adult human being, its constitution. That guarantee is more certain than a promise. In the discussion of probability as it relates to the possibility of the conceptus being born, the claim has been made that because only 40% of human zygotes survive to become fully developed self-conscious human beings, it is more appropriate to consider the human zygote as four-tenths probable person. Here there is a confusion of predictions of the future with descriptions of present states of existence and a failure to distinguish classical laws from statistical laws. Classical laws describe regularities, a one-to-one -one causal relationship, other things being equal. There is an anticipation of invariance. An example of a classical law is syngamy, the union of the egg and the sperm and the restoration of the diploid number of chromosomes marks the beginning of a new life. Statistical laws, on the other hand, relate to probabilities, that is, assessments based on relative actual frequencies. The statement that only 40% of ova survive to be born may be used to formulate a probability statement that is a statistical assessment of the likelihood that a fertilized ovum will survive to be born. It says nothing about the nature of the surviving being. What might be concluded from this probability statement is that existence is precarious at this particular period in the life of a human being. At the other end of the continuum of life, it may be the case that only 40% of those who reach the age of 75 survive to be 80. This does not make those who are now 75 only 40% persons. It simply means that those who have reached the age of 75 are rather vulnerable in a statistical sense. Finally, three particular and somewhat related issues are brought forth to cast doubt on the claims of the conceptus to be a continuous individual developing human being. These are the lack of unity of organization as evidenced by general appearance and as evidenced by specific time-limited capacity of potentiality of the blastomeres and the possibility of monozygous twinning and the controversy over ensoulment theories. 
In regard to the unity of organization, the so-called aggregate of loosely associated cells, it is immediately apparent that there is a unity of the organism in its containment within the zona pellucida and within the corona radiata. Each of these has specific functions in the survival of the individual. In addition, the individual blastomeres, even at the earliest stage, while giving a superficial appearance of loose association, are in constant and intense interaction as the organism, through its genetically determined internal dynamism, continues its own self-development. As early as the eight-stage cell, the process of the compaction of the blastomeres takes place. This compaction has at least two functions. The first is to protect the conceptus, here in the pre-implantation embryo stage, from the influence of outside fluids which might be damaging to its integrity. The second is to couple the blastomeres to permit ion exchange and molecular exchange from one blastomere to the next. The blastomeres do indeed have the time-limited capacity for totipotentiality. This totipotentiality is the ability of a cell to be the source of an entire organism. Rather than considering totipotentiality as a suggestion of lack of individuality, it might be considered a particular strength of the human being at this particularly vulnerable stage of its development. Because this stage of human development is particularly vulnerable, each of the blastomeres has the capacity to repair by means of the biological process called regulation damage to the individual developing human being. The individual cells at the early stage of development have a prospective potency that is greater than its prospective fate. That is, it has the capacity to form the types of cells it normally does if in the course of development it is not disturbed. After this stage of development, there is a subsequent decline in human potentialities. But this is true of human development in general. As certain potentialities are actualized, others are entirely lost. As to the lack of unity, as occasioned by the occurrence of monozygous twinnings, it is important to indicate that monozygous twinning is infrequent and that very little is known about the etiology of this process. Monozygous twins occur in approximately 25 thousandths of 1%. Monozygous twinning may be caused by an environmental change, a precipitous drop in oxygen has been suggested, or it may be caused by genetic mutation. A mutation on the chromosome during mitosis has been suggested. Monozygous twinning, understood as a type of regulation process, may simply be a particular kind of totipotentiality called into operation on the occasion of significant damage to the developing entity. Both in frequency of its occurrence and its possible accidental occurrence suggests that monozygous twinning is a departure from the norm. Theories of ensoulment have been brought forth to add to the mix of issues on the determination of when a human life begins. The two most important theories are that of immediate animation and immediate ensoulment and that of immediate animation and delayed ensoulment. The adequacy of a theory of ensoulment must be its conformity to the correct understanding of the development of that being. Ensoulment theories have been conceived differently in different historical periods. In ancient and medieval philosophy, 
They were tied to scientific theories of the origin of human life and concerns about the proper disposition and organization of matter to receive the soul. Now, inasmuch as monozygous twinning appears an aberration rather than the norm, considerations of its ensoulment may depart from the norm. Theories of immediate animation and immediate ensoulment, or immediate animation and delayed ensoulment, are tied to the acceptance of particular biological understandings of the development of human life. In the period in which preformation theories, such as the homunculus, held biological prominence, immediate animation and immediate ensoulment were the prevailing view. The human being, the homunculus, was present in the seed. When the seed was sowed in an appropriate matter, the new human being simply grew bigger. Animation and ensoulment were immediate. Those who argue for immediate animation but delayed ensoulment argue from a particular biological perspective, which understands that the human being is present when its formation has been completed. The essential elements in that position are presented in the following. The soul is the substantial form of the human being. A substantial form requires matter capable of receiving it. In the case of the human being, this means that the human soul can exist only in a highly organized body. What is being presented here is a theory of serial ensoulment, a vegetative soul, a sensate soul, and finally a rational soul. The animation of this new being is immediate at fertilization, but its ensoulment with a rational soul is delayed until sometime in its future development. The significant points in the theory of serial ensoulment are the following. First, because the soul is a substantial form of the body, the rational soul cannot be present until there is a body present that is significantly complex and organized to receive the soul. Second, a formal cause is present only in a finished product. An actual soul cannot be united with a virtual body. Third, there is no human body in the zygote. And fourth, all of the positive features of the human being derive from the soul. The responses are as follows. The first point is insufficiently aware of the high degree of organization and the high degree of complexity of activity and development in this new entity. To the second point, inasmuch as the genotype fixes the goal and inasmuch as the adult human being cannot be more than what it is determined to be in the zygote, there is a very real sense in which the human being is fully formed in the zygote stage. The ultimate stage from a natural perspective is the adult human being, who is the becoming of the initial stage. To the third point, the human body is really present in the zygote, in the active natural potentiality of the zygote. It is not fully developed in the sense of a completed adult body. It is, however, the fully developed body and what it should be at that point in development. It might be appropriate to say it is an actual human person with a body whose full development is already in dynamic process. To the fourth point, the human body does derive all of its positive features from its rational soul. However, all of the potentialities of the human being are established in the active, natural potentialities in the zygote stage. It seems then more appropriate to maintain that a rational soul is present at that time. A more economic theory of ensoulment would be as follows. The rational soul is present from the beginning, 
first active at a vegetative level, then active at a vegetative and sensate level, and finally active at a vegetative, sensate, and rational level. If the position developed above, that is, that human life is a continuum from syngamy until death, rests on a sufficiently solid foundation, and if the responses to the counterpositions are adequate, then abortion takes the life of a human being. Abortion is a species of the problem of homicide, and the ethical injunctions that apply to the destruction of human life apply similarly to abortion. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.